0: This is the Today's RDH Dental Hygiene Podcast. The podcast for curious and passionate dental hygienists. Kara RDH here, and I want to thank Listerine for sponsoring this podcast audio article. Although Listerine Antiseptic is the most extensively tested over-the-counter mouth rinse in the world, with over 30 long-term clinical trials examining its safety and efficacy, there is still some misinformation out there over the uses of mouth rinses containing alcohol. To help understand the safety of alcohol-containing mouth rinses, in case any patients ask you about it, head on over to rdh.tv slash Listerine Safety. That's rdh.tv slash Listerine Safety. The link is also in the description of this audio article. And please note, although a sponsor of this audio article, Listerine and Johnson & Johnson Consumer Inc. had no input into or control over the content being presented in this podcast. Now let's get to the audio article.
1: Implant Maintenance, an overview by Spring Hatfield, RDH, BSPH. The number of implants placed by dentists and dental specialists is increasing based on a predictable outcome of success. A comprehensive treatment plan includes advising the patient of the risk of failure based on smoking, history of radiotherapy, systemic health issues, and local bone quality and quantity. Peri-implant disease is a combination of poor oral hygiene, placement of a non-cleansable prosthetic, or recommendations that are not effective for implants. Thus, one of the key factors to implant success is the adherence to an effective maintenance program to ensure longevity of the implant. Dental hygienists play an intricate role in the overall success of dental implants. With the placement of dental implants becoming more common, it's important for hygienists to have a protocol for maintenance. The following is a review of recent studies with information regarding dental implants and proper maintenance. Implant failure. Dental implants yield excellent long-term results, with 10-year success and survival rates above 95 percent. The reasons for implant failure are still being studied. A thorough medical history is imperative to weigh risk factors of implant failure. Smoking and radiotherapy have been shown to increase implant failure. Studies have shown diabetes and osteoporosis are also risk factors, though more thorough studies are needed to confirm an association. Other risk factors include biomechanical overload as well as infection and inflammation. Patients with poorly controlled diabetes suffer from impaired osteointegration, elevated risk of periimplantitis, and a higher level of implant failure. The influence of duration of the disease is not fully clear. When diabetes is well-controlled, implant procedures are safe and predictable, with a complication rate like that of healthy patients. So, always get the patient's most recent HbA1c reading, current chart to help assess inflammation, smoking history, and history of osteoporosis before implant surgery. With this information, the doctor can better discuss the risk factors of implant failure. Instrumentation. The impact of scalars on implant abutment surfaces varies between abutment types, presumably due to different surface characteristics, with no apparent advantage of one abutment type over the other. With regard to resistance to surface damage, unfilled resin was found consistently to be the least damaging to abutment surfaces, although all scalars of all compositions cause detectable surface changes to polished surfaces of implant abutments. A study conducted in 2014 compared cleaning effectiveness of implant prophylaxis instruments. Instrument types included in the study were a plastic curette, carbon fiber reinforced plastic curette, a sonic-driven device with prophylaxis brush without prophylaxis paste, rotating rubber cup with prophylaxis paste, sonic-driven device with a plastic instrument tip, ultrasonic device with a plastic instrument tip, and air polishing using a low-abrasive amino acid glycine powder nearly all instruments inflicted at least slight damage, such as scratches or rounded edges on surface structure. The best cleaning effectiveness was observed with the sonic and ultrasonic oscillating plastic tips and air polishing. Second most effective was the prophylactic brush and prophylactic cup. The least effective was the manual plastic and carbon fiber-reinforced plastic curettes. Another study conducted compared the impact of different scalar material composition on polished titanium implant abutments. The results were glass-filled resin scalers causing significantly more and longer scratches, while unfilled resin scalers resulted in the least amount of surface change. While plastic implant instruments appear to do the least damage to an implant, they're the least effective at debridement. There's also a risk of residues of instruments being left on treated surfaces, which might disturb cell attachment. Residues of various curettes and inserts for ultrasonic devices, as well as powder remnants after the use of air abrasive devices, have all been found on the titanium surfaces after instrumentation. A study was performed to determine the location of inaccessible implant surface areas during debridement. Again, several prophylactic instruments were used, including a greasy curette, ultrasonic scaler, and air polisher. The study concluded that regardless of the applied cleaning approach and instrument type, significant differences in cleaning efficacy were found between the distinct implant surface areas. Machine surface areas at the implant shoulder were generally well accessible and showed the least amounts of residual stain detectable. Apically facing thread surfaces showed the most residual stain regardless of approach and instrumentation technique. Although air powder abrasives provided the best cleaning results, still around three quarters of the surface remained uncleaned. This study concluded the development of new instruments must, therefore, focus on the effective debridement of these crucial areas in order to allow for reliable and predictable results in peri-implantitis treatment. In summation, prevention of peri implantitis implies keeping smooth surfaces of the implant supported restoration clean. Ideally, the instruments used to effectively clean smooth surfaces should cause minimal or no surface damage, should not create a surface that's more conducive to bacterial colonization, and shouldn't affect the implant soft tissue interface. If the soft tissue attachment is disrupted, the instrumentation procedure should maintain a surface that's conducive to the re establishment of the soft tissue seal. Regarding smooth surfaces, a roughened of the surface was observed when treated with metal curettes or sonic and ultrasonic devices with metal tips. Although with titanium curettes this occurs to a lesser extent, the use of these instruments on smooth surfaces is not advisable. The best suitable instrument for any given surface should be chosen depending on the surface properties and localization. From the available instruments, The air polisher seems to be currently the most suitable instrument for both smooth and rough surfaces when preservation of the surface structure is required. In the presence of calcified deposits, the cleaning potential of all mechanical instruments is reduced. Metal instruments are more effective at removing hard deposits. However, it should be kept in mind that these instruments may damage the titanium surface and should be used with caution. If a choice must be made, titanium instruments should be preferred. Suggested Maintenance Protocol Soft Tissue Assessment The soft tissue assessment includes checking for visual signs of gingival inflammation, such as redness, swelling, alterations of contour and consistency, aberrant gingival form, or the presence of fistulas. Plaque Index It's recommended that some objective form of plaque monitoring be performed and documented at every maintenance visit to allow longitudinal assessment of oral hygiene. Clinical Probing Depth Probing is an important and reliable diagnostic parameter in long-term monitoring of all soft tissues, including peri-implant soft tissues. The safety in probing around implant restorations has been well established, and this procedure doesn't seem to jeopardize the integrity of oral implants. However, less probing force is needed around implant due to the decreased attachment strength to the implant and the connective tissue. It's recommended to wait at least three months after placement before probing implants. In the past, plastic probes have been recommended. However, two recent studies suggested conventional metal periodontal probes because they don't appear to cause any damage to either the mucosal attachment or to the implant. Though it's acceptable to use either a plastic or metal probe around implants, the use of a plastic probe may have advantages. Plastic probes are more flexible and they're easier to navigate the contour of the implant. During the first prophy or periodontal appointment after installation of the prosthesis, it's important to establish the baseline value for clinical probing depths. Again, it's important to make sure that the appointment is three months after implant placement. Probing depths for conventionally placed implants with supraosseous implant platforms generally range between 2 and 4 millimeters if the tissues are healthy. Implants placed at bone level or at an intraosseous level may exhibit slightly greater clinical probing depths. Probing depths around implants may be deeper and still be healthy, and this is because the sulcus is created surgically and not naturally developed. Increases in both clinical probing depth and bleeding on probing over time are usually associated with loss of attachment and loss of bone, and should be viewed as signs of peri-implant disease. Bleeding on probing. A study of implants confirmed that absence of bleeding on probing was an accurate indication of stability. It's been reported that bleeding on probing alone yields higher diagnostic accuracy at implant sites compared with natural tooth sites. These studies highlight the importance of recording bleeding on probing when performing periodontal evaluation to monitor peri-implant soft tissues. Separation. Separation should be noted. Separation has been associated with peri-implantitis and can be an indicator that anti-infective therapy is warranted. Stability of the soft tissue margins. Though a correlation between implant failure and stability of soft tissue around implants has not been established, It's important to evaluate and take note of any apical migration of the tissue. Recession can expose rough implant structures, which accumulate more plaque and could lead to inflammation and possible peri-implant mucositis. Mobility. Mobility is a primary determining factor for implant health. Mobility should be assessed regularly. This can be done manually or by using an automated device. To properly assess mobility for multi-unit implant fixed prosthesis, it's recommended that the prosthesis is periodically removed. By removing the prosthesis, a more accurate assessment can be made regarding mobility, gingival health, and hygiene status. If the prosthesis is not periodically removed, mobility could be masked by the stability of the other implants. Occlusion. Studies indicate that there is a direct correlation between occlusal overload and peri-implant bone loss. Occlusion should be checked at regular intervals to identify any occlusal disharmonies. Premature contacts or other interferences should be identified and corrected. A case report published in the International Journal of Oral and Maxillofacial Implants found that the placement of an unstable removable prosthesis on three well-integrated implants that had been stable for nine years caused noticeable bone loss after 6 months. The elimination of the traumatic occlusion reversed the situation. The condition has been stable for the past 4 years. Radiographs to monitor bone level. Preservation of crustal bone height is crucial to the long-term success of an implant. Radiographs to monitor crustal bone loss is recommended. To establish baseline bone levels, a radiograph should be taken at implant placement and again at prosthesis insertion. A periapical vertical bite wing radiograph should be taken at 6-8 to month intervals and compared to the baseline to assess crustal bone. If the bone level is stable, another periapical vertical bite wing should be taken after one year and compared. If the bone level continues to be stable, periapical vertical bite wing should be taken every three years. However, at any time crustal bone levels change, radiographs should be taken and reviewed every six to eight months until the bone level is stable for two consecutive periods. Home Care Interproximal cleaning is a must for natural teeth as well as implants. When advising patients on proper home care, it's important to assess each patient's individual needs. Due to the contour and shape of implant restorations, plaque removal can be difficult. Studies indicate interproximal brushes are superior to traditional floss. Just one argument against traditional string floss was found in a study conducted in 2016 which tried to determine the relationship between the use of dental floss or super floss and development of peri-implantitis. In the study, 10 patients with progressive peri-implantitis who weren't responding to professional therapy, including supra and subgingival cleanings, were examined. Plaque and bleeding indices, as well as radiographic examinations, were performed. And in all 10 cases, floss remnants were found around the neck and coronal part of the implant. The remnants were removed and the implant was cleansed, which resulted in significant improvement in 9 out of 10 cases. This study recommends interproximal brushes instead of traditional floss for daily home care. The science seems to be against string floss when it comes to implants. Recommending and showing patients how to properly use interproximal brushes should increase implant success. When recommending interdental brushes, there are a couple of considerations. The first being the size of the patient's embrasure spaces. Interdental brushes should be correctly sized to fit the interproximal area. Some patients may need multiple sizes of interdental brushes to clean all areas of their dentition, whether it be natural teeth or implants. Another consideration when recommending interdental brushes to implant patients is to recommend brushes that are plastic or metal-coated with plastic as to not scratch the implant. A scratch creates more surface area for bacteria to accumulate and may make proper cleaning harder. Open contacts between implants and natural teeth should be monitored as well. Five studies indicated that an interproximal gap developed 34% to 66% of the time after an implant restoration was inserted next to a natural tooth. This event occurred as early as three months after prosthetic rehabilitation, usually on the mesial aspect of a restoration. Steps should be taken to check the continuity of the arch periodically. If a clinician detects an open contact, it's prudent to monitor for signs or symptoms of peri-implantitis or peri-implant mucositis. This further enhances the importance of proper home care instructions and interproximal cleaning instructions. Though a lot of implant success is reliant on patient compliance, we as dental professionals are responsible for providing patients with proper guidance and tools to be successful. It's also our responsibility to take the time to examine and record any changes or concerns that we find during implant patients' regular maintenance appointments. Implants are a great tooth replacement option and it's certainly the one that I would choose the more that we know about implant maintenance and care the better we can serve our patients which will ultimately make us all better clinicians
0: thank you for listening to the audio article i want to thank listerine again for sponsoring this episode and for their recognition of the important role hygienists play in the dental office i encourage you to check out the clearing up mouth rinse misinformation page at rdhtv Safety. It is a great resource to help understand the safety of alcohol-containing mouth rinses if a patient ever brings it up with you that's rdh.tv listerine safety the link is also in the description thank you for listening to the today's rdh dental hygiene podcast